Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. So funny story before we get to our uh, next next interview. We were um, looking to get our next guest, Dave Leventhal, on. And I was giving Josh the number for another Dave L in my phone. So, um, I mean, he's going to know it's me because who else from the 716 is calling him? But we thought Leventhal, we, we thought Dave was not answering his phone, but I was giving the wrong Dave L. So that's probably, I probably should label things better in my phone. Uh, but, you know, I digress. Our next guest is Dave Leventhal from Business Insider. And of course, the first question I have to ask Dave, how do you feel about the newest Buffalo Bill? I'm, I'm feeling uh, probably like a lot of Buffalonians right now, which is pretty darn good about life uh, in, in, in the 716 and beyond for all of Bill's Mafia. I mean, you know, as uh, terrible as last season ended for the Bills, we're, we're going into 2022 here with, man, probably more optimism than uh, I have felt since the early 90s. It's pretty cool. You, know, you have all that, Dave, and I don't know how much uh, you're following this in D.C. You have all the excitement, the new players, and you have Governor Hochul saying Bill's stadium negotiations on track. So right now everything's looking pretty good. It is. And, you know, of course, I'm sure there's lots of people out there listening saying, well, you know, what's going to screw it up? What's going to be the roadblock? What's going to derail all of this? Uh, but uh, at the same time, too, uh, we've been in some uh, pretty bleak places and things have uh, worked their way out. Uh, let's go back to 2014 when we were having lots of conversations about whether the bills were even going to stay in Buffalo. That's right. And so for this to be going in uh, this direction, it does seem to uh, to definitely be quite heartening, to say the least, Joe. And yeah, things are things are definitely looking up, uh, not not only on the team front, uh, but also the the whole organization front and, and the whole city front, for that matter, too. It is, it is. It's a it's it's a great time, you know. With with, uh, it's a great time to be in Western New York. I will always say that. Not today so much. It's gloomy outside, but a lot of promise going forward, and uh, love being here, being part of it. And Dave, we we love when you're uh, going to be back in town. Now, to more serious things, uh, we uh, we played at ten thirty. We, we've been doing a, a weekly update about what's going on in Ukraine. Now, this week, the president of Ukraine uh, had a video message or a video conference with members of Congress. How did that go? Well, it, it was about as dramatic as you could have imagined. And a lot of people in Congress were even taken by surprise with the uh, not only the tone and the tenor, of the speech that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky had given, but also to the video that was played in conjunction with his speech. Uh, some of the images from that particular video were just unbelievably graphic. It was a very dramatic video, and uh, it was a heart-wrenching one at that, too. And I think for many members of Congress who are getting intelligence briefings and they are reading just reams of information about what's happening there, and they are being told what the United States knows in terms of intelligence about the situation, this really drove home the human element uh, and the, the, the tragic personal element of what's happening to the people in Ukraine uh, as, as if it was almost happening here in the United States. 
So uh, in, in you know, hearing from many members of Congress after this particular speech, uh, I think it changed some of their perspectives uh, or, or at least drove it home in a way that hadn't been driven home before. So that has a direct and demonstrable effect on uh, potentially the way that the United States is going to act in response uh, to this invasion that's happening in, in Ukraine. And uh, as a result, uh, Ukraine's point of doing this, and not only in the United States, I should note, but in Canada and Germany and many other countries, too, where uh, President Zelensky is, is doing exactly what uh, he did in the United States for those countries' government, too, having direct addresses to them. Uh, he is definitely getting at least some of the things that he wants, if not all of the things that he wants. And I should note that includes a no-fly zone, which no NATO country or, or the United States certainly has agreed to uh, at this point and, and probably in, in the near to uh, longer-term future. And the White House reacted right after um, that speech. We heard from President Joe Biden, and this was putting more restrictions on Russia. Uh, Dave, what does the United States have left um, to, to sanction Russia? I mean, is there any further action that's not military action that the United States could take? Yes, there is. So I, I should note just to step back that, that there has been a, a very steady and, and quite quick uh, squeeze that has been happening on the economic front uh, with Russia. So there are quite literally thousands of ways, small and large, that any country, including the United States, uh, can uh, sanction another country with. And the United States uh, has been uh, absolutely uh, aggressive, I guess you could say, uh, in, in all fairness, uh, in the way that it has taken on Russia from an economic standpoint. So what could be done that isn't, be done, isn't uh, being done now? Well, there are still you know, certain uh, types of um, trade that are going on between the United States uh, and Russia that may not be getting headlines, but uh, there, there are still uh, it, pathways to uh, commerce uh, that, that do exist uh, as we speak right now. Uh, those are beginning to, uh, to, again, narrow very quickly, and it is possible if we're having this conversation in a month, Joe, that there's effectively nothing in a material sense that's happening between the United States uh, and Russia. But uh, as dramatic as these sanctions can be, it's not like flipping a light switch. And some of the sanctions that really fly under the radar specifically are on individuals uh, in Russia. So we oftentimes think of sanctions as country versus country or something that the United States would be doing to Russia or to Iran or to North Korea. But uh, the United States can also sanction individual people, and that includes uh, all the way on up to Vladimir Putin himself, to members of his government, to Russian oligarchs, uh, to uh, members of, uh, of a uh, uh, leader or governmental officials' families. And that's one thing that hasn't been done yet is all the different tools that are at the United States' disposal to put the hurt basically on, on individuals in Russia who are either supportive uh, of the war, supportive of the war effort, or in the opinion of the United States are not doing enough uh, internally to stop the progress uh, of Russia's assault on the Ukraine at this point. Dave, you mentioned the no-fly zone, and as you said, um, all the NATO countries uh, still uh, seemingly against that. Um, but are, is there anyone in Washington that is trying to push for a no-fly zone? Is it, is it unanimous in Washington against the no-fly zone, or are there individuals, Congress, Senate, members of the White House uh, staff, that you know, are kind of starting to lean towards no-fly zone? There, there really isn't at this point, Joe. Now, sure, there are, are certain voices, perhaps in certain uh, think tanks, that uh, have said, yes, maybe this is a good idea or something we should consider, something we should keep on the table. But 
uh, among members of the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate and the top officials in the Biden administration on up to Joe Biden, uh, a no-fly zone is really a non-starter. They, they view that to one extent or another as the United States getting directly involved uh, in the war and, and something that, in many of their opinion, would be uh, intervention that, that could lead to direct military conflict or, or might inevitably lead to direct military conflict with Russia. And then we start talking about really, really, really scary things for the United States back home. Would Russia begin to uh, attack the United States directly? Would it begin to attack U.S. allies in NATO, which could trigger a automatic response from other NATO con- countries against Russia? And, and, and the greatest extent to all of this is discussion of, well, would, would this be the precursor or the trigger to a World War III. And, and that obviously is about as sobering a prospect as anyone uh, could, could ever conceive of. So that really is the thinking at this point, collectively, if there is a collective thought to be had among members of Congress, both on the right and on the left, Democrats and Republicans, and in an age where it's difficult to find unanimity on almost anything, Joe, we, we are finding near unanimity, if not complete unanimity, on the issue of the United States not creating a no-fly zone or otherwise uh, engaging directly militarily, flying planes over Ukraine, anything of that sort, that that would uh, be viewed by Russia uh, or or the rest of the world as the United States directly engaging in in military conflict. Definitely something we will uh, continue to keep our eye on. Dave, uh, keeping it in Washington, something you guys have done, again, um, nonpartisan, you've you've, uh, found people from both sides of the aisle, uh, uh, continuing, uh, Democrat Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has now, you guys found, uh, violated two um, conflict of interests. Uh, This is on the Politics Insider. Absolutely. So uh, back in December, we published a uh, massive project, took us about five months uh, to report it out and write it and then publish it, called Conflicted Congress. And what it does is explores all the myriad different ways that Democrats and Republicans, through their personal stock investments and and personal financial investments, are either violating a federal conflict uh, of interest law known as the Stock Act, uh, or engaging in stock activity, financial trade activity that uh, very much uh, could be viewed as being in conflict, um, tantamount to a conflict of interest with their official duties. Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator Democrat from Rhode Island that you just mentioned, we just uh, had a story of yesterday that indicated that two of his stock trades, one in Tesla and one in Target, the retail store, uh, had uh, had been disclosed late after a, a federal deadline. Uh, that's in violation of the Stock Act. Uh, We've also had recent reporting, too, Joe, that indicates that there are at least 18 members of Congress who, going back to the situation in Ukraine, who directly personally invest in two defense contractor companies, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Well, why should we care about them? Well, because they are the ones who manufacture Javelin and Stinger missiles that the United States and U.S. allies are sending to Ukraine. So, in essence, you have members of Congress who have a personal financial stake uh, in the production of those missiles that the U.S. government itself is sending to Ukraine. Now, nobody's really arguing with uh, the notion of sending that that, that type of uh, uh, weaponry to Ukraine, but the notion of members of Congress profiting uh, off those sales and transactions has uh, caused more than a few people here in Washington, D.C. to scratch their heads. So this is all coming with the backdrop of Congress itself going forward with an effort to potentially ban lawmakers from buying and selling individual stocks so long as they serve 
in Congress. So there was supposed to be a hearing on it uh, just the past couple of days ago, but the chairman of the committee got COVID, so it got postponed and is likely to be rescheduled uh, for some time in the next uh, few weeks once uh, she recovers from her COVID infection. You know, I'm glad you brought up COVID because uh, we saw on uh, making the rounds on TV again, Dr. Anthony Fauci talking about, you know, uh, maybe having to, to go back on those COVID restrictions. What's, what's the feeling of the elected officials in D.C. with COVID? Uh, are people starting to talk about maybe putting mask mandates back in? What is the feel right now when it comes to COVID in D.C. when, you know, hearing from all of these elected officials? Well, the feeling right now, and, and, and this is also Democrats and Republicans, too, uh, I, I feel like we're talking about more unanimity than you might think uh, here in Washington, but they are very over COVID at this moment. And the, the, the case rates physically here in D.C. are very, very low. Most members of Congress are going around without masks, uh, and you, you, all you have to do is watch the State of the Union uh, address to, to see Democrats and Republicans not wearing masks inside as uh, this was being uh, you know, televised live on national television as Joe Biden was uh, speaking and delivering his State of the Union. So at this moment in time, uh, it, I think you have most members uh, of the government, with some exceptions, saying, look, let's let's take this moment. Case, case counts are low. Schools here in D.C. have made masks o- optional. And D.C. is uh, a very, very, uh, very, very blue city. Uh, and people are just are, are seeming to, no pun intended, you know, take a breath of fresh air and, uh, and not doing anything more than they need to uh, at this point. But you look at case numbers in Europe and other parts of the world where there are new waves that are happening. And uh, one must wonder and we all must, you know, be vigilant in the sense that uh, the case numbers, although they're low now in many portions of the United States, could be going back up. And you could have a month or two or five or six from now government officials singing a very different tune, and that just speaks to the nature of this pandemic, which is still here and still very alive and real, and especially, man, if you are in Hong Kong right now or certain parts of Asia, uh, it's a whole different story. It's, it's there uh, right now as we were experiencing in December and January with the extreme, extreme spike uh, when the Omicron wave uh, took uh, place. So, the pandemic is not uniform. The pandemic viruses do what they do. They replicate and they change. And uh, as a result, uh, we are either going to have to change and adapt with it or uh, we are going to suffer the consequences uh, as much as we would like to have all of this in the rearview mirror. And, you know, you, me and everyone else would, would love to see nothing more than that happen. Another thing I, I think the White House would like to have in the rearview mirror are gas prices, Dave. We uh, we heard a lot of discussion on that. Now, state by state, you have some states that are suspending their gas tax. New York State doesn't seem to be going in that direction. Um, what other ways uh, to relieve or give relief to these uh, gas prices have we heard in Washington and throughout the country? Yeah, and, you know, these are really, you just mentioned sort of the levers that different states will have. They're, they're limited, but they, they do make a difference to try to lower gas prices. Now, at the federal level, you can definitely tap the uh, Federal Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to try to get uh, a temporary relief nationwide of gas prices. You can definitely raise uh, and lower 
state gas taxes, as you've seen, including uh, very close here to D.C. and, and Maryland. I, I live in D.C., but I'm very close to the line with Maryland. And if you go you know, a couple streets over, the gas prices are definitely demonstrably lower than they are on the D.C. side. So you can expect where people are going to be going for, uh, for gas when they need to fill up. But, you know, this really underscores a, a major philosophical issue. If you don't charge a gas tax, well, what happens? Well, that money in many cases goes to repairing roads and bridges and whatnot. And although it's not going to hurt you in the short term, it definitely could hurt governments in the long term in terms of, you know, filling those potholes or making sure that those bridges are in good repair. Things that are not sexy, you do not see when you're driving down the street at this very moment uh, in big neon lights on a sign that says, you know, $4.89 or whatever it is. But, you know, two years or five years or 10 years down the road, that, that does make a big difference. And certainly if your car hits a giant pothole and you, you know, got to spend $250 on the new alignment uh, down the road, uh, that's going to be something that uh, you kind of wish that pothole was filled. So there, there are consequences to this. And also, too, you know, it, it really just uh, – I've talked to a lot of people about the gas issue, and I've gotten a variety of opinions. Some people saying, yeah, look, it, it's really hard. I run a small business. I, I rely on lower gas prices in order to keep my prices low for my customers. It, it hurts me in terms of my ability to employ people. If I have unexpected spikes in, in something that I hope is going to be a lot lower and fixed, like gas prices. And then I've talked to other people who say – Look, I am willing to pay an extra 20, 30, 40 cents uh, at, at the pump per gallon, an extra five or six dollars every time I fill up, if it means that not a drop of Russian oil is going to go into my gas tank, because there's lots of people in Ukraine who not only don't have gasoline in the first place, but they don't have a home right now. They are displaced. They're living in another country as a result of what's going on. And if I can do one little thing to try to help that situation, then I'm going to do that. So definitely a variety of uh, kind of uh, philosophical thoughts uh, and arguments as to what is the right course of action to go forward with when it comes to this particular issue, Jim. Dave, uh, Congressman Don Young passed away this week. What can you tell us about uh, the late congressman? Uh, one, one of the, the, the most larger-than-life uh, members of Congress during his many, many, many years there. I believe he served, well, 10 different U.S. presidents have been in office. And uh, at the age of 88, he was the uh, the dean of the U.S. House, uh, the longest-serving member uh, in, until his death uh, just a couple of days ago. So he was also one of the more idiosyncratic uh, members of Congress. Uh, he was inclined to vote with Republicans, but not always, and uh, sometimes would be uh, very conspicuously the lone vote uh, against something that all other members of Congress uh, were voting for, whether it be a, a, a budget item uh, might be another type of uh, bill that the Congress was passing, but he was somebody who, like a lot of folks in Alaska, just very much valued their independence and were not going to be cowed into going any which uh, one way or another. I mean, there's an incredible story about uh, how one time he got into a literally a physical altercation with then-Speaker John Boehner of the U.S. House and brought a knife to this fight. Uh, and John Boehner basically uh, you know, told him uh, a couple of choice words that we can't say on radio. And, well, they became uh, good friends after that, too. So, I mean, he, he was somebody who just uh, really did it his own way, uh, got a lot of money to Alaska, especially for transportation projects, uh, something he was very proud of, even though a lot of government watchdog groups are always uh, calling him the king of pork and uh, trying to get federal money for state projects. But yeah, he was a character uh, the the likes of which uh, we are 
you know, <laughs> we are probably never going to see for for a long time, at least in the way that he did it stylistically. Well, John Boehner, he likes to uh, he likes to befriend people after he has fights with them, huh? Uh, you, you know, John Boehner, another character in his own right. But, uh, yeah, the two of them together were, were quite a duo. Uh, Dave, before we let you go, um, what should we be looking out for this week out of the federal government in D.C.? Well, I, I would keep an eye on uh, the America First agenda. This is something where I've noticed uh, definite, uh, I don't think you can call it a schism just yet, but... You've got some uh, of the much more hawkish Republicans who are kind of defining America first, which, uh, of course, is the, uh, the the Trump philosophy of the way that the United States uh, should work. And they're kind of defining America first as being very interventionalist, meaning that the, the United States should be leading on the international stage when it comes to Ukraine and fighting against Russia, that it uh, should be the strongest voice of all in NATO and that uh, what is good uh, in Ukraine is good for the United States and what's bad for Russia is good for the United States, uh, as opposed to taking uh, a much more non-interventionalist type of approach to foreign affairs, uh, which would be sort of the uh, standard uh, Trump-style America first mantra. So there's uh, definitely been some divisions between Donald Trump and hawkish members of the Republican Party uh, in Congress right now. And uh, that's going to be an interesting dynamic going forward because it, it is relatively new, but uh, it's developing very quickly. Dave Leventhal, Business Insider. Dave, it's always great to have you uh, on Hardline, and I'm sure we will be talking again very soon. I, I hope so. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. That is Dave Leventhal. He is from Business Insider, the Deputy uh, Washington Bureau Chief. And if you missed any of that interview, any of our interview with State Senator Ed Rath, or any of our interview with Assemblyman Angelo Morinello, well, you just go to WBEN.com or the Odyssey app and get up to date. I'll talk to you tomorrow afternoon at 2 p.m. as I fill in for Tom Bowerly here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.